And you think, hello, hello, happy Sabbath. Welcome to church. We're glad you could join us. Wow, it's awesome coming up here and seeing such a full church. And whether you're joining us um, online from Alaska, Arizona, or from wherever else um, in the U.S., we're glad you're joining us for worship. We welcome you guys, and we're glad you could spend this Sabbath with us as we open up um, and spend some time worship and into the Word. Um, if you've been part of us, are joining us live or in person over the past few weeks, uh, we recently started a new series. Uh, Pastor Chris started it off two weeks ago, and the title of the series is Before You Go. The time is before you go, um, and it's really a series, and we've been kind of kind of open and transparent about kind of the targeted like demographic and who we really had in mind when we were brainstorming and coming up with this series. And it was one um, seniors leaving for college. The idea that they're physically going to be leaving um, in a couple of months, and before you go, here's some things to keep in mind before you leave, like the bubble and like the church and your home church that you grew up in. Here's some things to keep in mind before you go. And the second group that we're talking about that we had in mind as we're coming up with the series and the content of the series um, is anyone that's thinking of leaving the faith. So maybe not physically leaving Portland or going to a different place, but spiritually leaving the faith or Christianity or religion or just taking God or religion out of your life as a whole. Um, before you do that, here's some things we want you to keep in mind and some things and some thoughts and some questions to ask yourselves before you make those changes. Um, to give a quick recap, the big idea that we've been exploring is this idea of secularism. Secularism and the concept of secularism or the world as it's portrayed in the Bible, it's a phrase that's been, we've been associating with this, the kingdom without the king. Pastor Chris introduced it in part one of the series. And the idea of secularism is actually, the goal of secularism is actually a fairly noble and attractive one. Um, it's, it's a goal for a better society, a better society, a more loving society, a more accepting society, um, and a more just society. And if you read kind of into the concept and philosophy of this, of what, you know, secularism is aiming to create or obtain, the goal, the vision that it has, it's really not too far off um, from when you read the scripture and the, the concept of the kingdom of God, the concept of the kingdom of God where God is king, where we love others as ourselves, where it's justice, and God looks out for those that are oppressed. The issue with this, and that's found in the phrase that we used, is that it attempts to create this kingdom without the king. So the kingdom of God, the perks of, of society of living that's found in the Bible and religion that Jesus outlines for us in his teachings without the authority um, and the need and the commitment to Jesus, to religion, to a church, to any sort of organization or beliefs. And in the first week, Pastor Chris introduced this particular question. Um, and it was, if I choose not to follow Jesus, who or what will I follow instead? If I choose not to follow Jesus, who or what will I follow instead? Instead, and the reason this question was so important, especially to start off our series, is because a common misconception is that when we leave the church, when we leave the faith, when we take Jesus out of our lives, and for some of us that feel like that religion is a shackle or there's a lot of burden with it, when we take those burdens and shackles off, that we can finally step into this neutral zone and figure things out on our own with an unbiased view and kind of a third-party perspective and figure things out on our own and just follow ourselves. Uh, but the reality is that we're not as autonomous and independent as we may think that we are, which brought us uh, to last week's message in part two of Before You Go, where we explored a key aspect of secularism. And one of the things that makes it so attractive is that it offers this idea of unlimited freedom. And we ended last week with this question. The kind of take-home question was, what will you do with your freedom? What will you do with your freedom? And while the idea of having unlimited freedom to do whatever you want, however you want, whenever we want, with whoever we want, sounds really attractive. Um, the reality is that unlimited freedom, especially when it's used solely for yourself and for or what you want to do, 
ultimately leads to two places, a place of isolation where there's a lack of community and a lack of meaning, where everything just becomes so meaningless because there's no depth and unlimited freedom. And if you're unsure how we got to either of those conclusions or you're uh, kind of thinking back, I don't remember what Pastor Chris talked about the past two weeks, I highly recommend uh, that you go online either to our website, Rock Fellowship SDA, or search Rock Fellowship wherever you listen to podcasts. And all of our uh, past series, our past messages are uploaded um, and for you to listen to on demand if you want to recap on everything that we talked about. Um, and this week's message in part three of Before You Go kind of picks up where we left off last week um, on this concept of freedom in a secular worldview. And we're going to explore a specific aspect um, of freedom, um, of freedom and, and that secularism that's not only important for those that are going to leave the church. And maybe for some of you guys, as you've been listening to this series so far, you've kind of felt like, oh, like this is a, a kind of a good to know series. It's not like applicable in my life right now. Or it's like a show a friend series where you feel like, oh, this is good content, but I don't know if I particularly find my place. I'm like pretty good in my faith, actually. Uh, but for at least this part of the series and, and for a good portion of this message, a lot of the problems that we see and the critiques that we can have of secularism are actually can also be found within the church as well. So there's a part of this message that's really relevant for those that really have no intention of leaving um, as well. So before we go into the message and to the rest of this content, I ask you to invite me um, in a word of prayer and we start off that way. Heavenly Father, Lord, I ask that as we enter into your word, into this message, Father, as we just sang and as we praise, Lord, um, create room in our hearts for you, Lord. Create room in my heart as a speaker, as I speak your word. Create room in anyone that's listening to this message, Lord, that if there's a specific truth or someone that you need to move in in a heart that you need to soften, Father, that we can have a posture of surrender, submission, and worship, and an open enough mind, as the Magi did, uh, to create room for you, for your truth, your message in our hearts, Lord. As you move here today, Father, Holy Spirit, you are welcome. I praise in your son, Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I want to start off by uh, talking about a phenomenon that I think a lot of people in this room have experienced to some extent. Depending, no matter where you are, I would argue you've either seen this, have experienced this, or are witnessing this within your own household. Um, like many people in the ages of, you know, junior high and high school, I went through a phase in my life that was kind of dominated by, like, the sense of, like, teenage angst. And between the ages of junior high and high school and my teenage years, I, uh, like many of us, went through this stage of, like, pretty strong rebellion against like my parents and like authority and I was like no I don't want to do what you tell me to do just because you tell me to do and interestingly we talked about this in our youth Sabbath school and it was you know it was a very um relatable concept to a lot of the people in your youth and maybe you're a parent and you see it in your own household or your parent and you relate to it because you remember when you went through that as well or maybe you're someone in here and you're like yeah like that's me right now like I'm going through that like as we speak um, and one of the things that I, I try to think of like a good example of that would kind of capture the essence of what I was like um, at that point. And one thing that came to mind is that as a teenage guy, uh, my, my room was actually generally and for the most part frequently very messy. But occasionally, very rarely, there would be times where I would look around in my room and I would be like, yeah, even for me, this is pretty gross. Like, I should definitely clean up. There are clothes strewn all over the place, papers, homework assignments that I missed stuck under stuff, trash can is full. And I would look around and be like, all right, even for me, this is pretty bad. I should probably clean up. And I would tell myself that, make a mental note and a plan. All right, in an hour, I'll finish what I'm doing and I'll clean in my room. And then, without fail, someone in my family, generally one of my parents would come and say, would walk into my room and be like, Oh my goodness, this is disgusting. Jonathan, clean your room. And in that minute, I would say, no, forget it. Because you told me to do it, now the chance of me cleaning this room has gone straight to zero. You know what? I'm going to make it even messier. 
And they were like, that kind of vision is like pretty much a pretty accurate glimpse of what I was like in those teenage kind of angsty, rebellious years. And kind of the mantra that I had. And obviously, I never said this to and, you know, any of my parents or a teacher or anything. But they kind of said it in my head was this idea of like, don't tell me how to live my life. Don't tell me how to live my life. I'll figure it out on my own. I'll figure it out. Don't tell me what to do. Even if I'm wrong and even if like your idea is actually what's correct, just the fact that you told me to do it, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to figure it out on my own. Um, and maybe if you, even if you aren't in that space, uh, maybe you've experienced this through, we talked about like two things in, in the discussion in our Sabbath school was, if you've heard of backseat driving or backseat gaming, the idea of backseat driving is when someone not in the driver's seat is telling the driver how they should drive, right? Oh, you don't want to turn there. Oh, you should slow down. Are you sure you're not going too quickly? Oh, actually, this turn is better than that turn. Whoa, 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 you shouldn't be turning that way. And if you've ever been in that situation when someone backseat drives, it's one of the most frustrating things. And when we talked about it in the youth, a more relatable concept was backseat gaming. And the idea of backseat gaming is when you are the one playing video games or computer games, you're sitting at the console or the computer, and someone is watching over your shoulder. And as they're watching, they're providing not only commentary, but like instruction on how you should play. Oh, whoa, 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 I wouldn't do that if I were you. Actually, it's better if you build this item or this item. And we talked about it in the youth, and that is one of the most frustrating things that could happen to you, right? And it's like, it's the biggest turnoff. And there are times when it's so bad that just the fact that someone else told you to do it is enough reason for you to not do it at all. And that freedom that secularism promises kind of taps into a little bit of that desire that I would argue to a certain extent is probably in all of us. That little, that kind of anti-authoritarian that we have inside of us that don't tell me what to do, I want to figure it out on my, on my own. And it kind of starts, I would argue, maybe like, you know, when you're a teenager, but I would argue even when you grow up, there's a little bit of that in you. Like, don't tell me how to live my life, don't tell me what to do, I'll figure it out on myself. We'll figure it out for ourselves. Um, and the freedom that secularism talks about, that promises, is very attractive because it taps into that. But also, if you grow up in religion and if you have any hang-ups about religion or faith or spirituality, it's doubly attractive because this is what the freedom and the anti-authoritarian of secularism promises. And it says, it addresses that a hang-up that a lot of people have with spirituality. And it's that for a lot of people, spirituality, faith, religion, it's too complicated. It's really complicated and a lot of it makes me feel very uncomfortable. There are parts of spirituality, there are parts of faith, of religion, of following Jesus or a higher power that I, I don't agree with. I don't like, it makes me feel comfortable and it doesn't sit well with me. And secularism offers a very, very convenient solution to this. And the solution is just get rid of it. If you don't like it, if you don't believe in it, if it doesn't make you feel good, just cut it out of your life. And what happens is that with the, the secularism and the freedom that secularism offers, that it's easy to create what I call like a DIY theology or a build your own faith, a build your own religion. And what happens is that when you just pick and choose your theology based on what you like, what you agree with, what makes you comfortable, what makes you feel good, you essentially create your own religion, your own spirituality, your own framework for faith. You decide what you want to believe. You can pick and choose what you agree with and what you don't agree with, and you create your own spiritual rubric. And this is actually a fairly popular thing that a lot of people do. If you ask a lot of people growing up what their religious background is, what their spirituality is, a lot of people will say, um, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. I'm spiritual, but I'm not really religious in the sense that I find some value in religion and spirituality and in this idea of a higher being and power and, you know, there being some sort of order to the cosmic universe. But I'm not, you know, I'm not really married to a 
particular organization or a set of rules and doctrines. I just kind of figure it out for myself as I go. And what happens when you do that um, and when you set the benchmark for your beliefs as your feelings, your preferences, and your thoughts, is that what happens is that instead of changing yourself, you can simply change the religion, change the beliefs. And it's actually very, very convenient. But what ends up happening is that faith kind of waters down to one of two options or some combination of these two. On one hand, it can just turn into like what I call like a pick-me-up faith. Pick-me-up faith is essentially spirituality gets watered down to a belief that helps you through hard times, that helps you give meaning to life. But outside of that, it doesn't really offer much outside of that. It's, it doesn't require much commitment or much change. You pull it out uh, when you're going through rough times and you need to find meaning. But when you're done and times are good, you shove it back in that box. And this pick-me-up faith is very compartmentalized, which makes it super convenient, right? When faith is convenient for me, when I need to find meaning, when I feel down, I'll pull it out and get hope and faith and encouragement, and it'll tell me that I'm doing a good job and that I can hang in there, but when I don't need it, I'll put it back in. And there are no time commitments. It comes and goes as I please. And again, it creates this very convenient packaged faith that helps you get through life, helps you, you know, attach some sort of meaning to, to the universe and to life and what you're doing, and it picks you up in hard times. But outside of that, it do, you don't need to change for it. You don't need to make any adjustments in your life, but it helps you feel better. And the other side, uh, the other aspect that comes with this DIY, build your own faith religion, is that we can become prone to Google theology or podcast theology. Um, what that is, is when religion or spirituality still remains a priority in your life, but you don't associate with like a particular religious community, you develop your own theology. And the problem with this is that with the amount of content that's online these days, with the amount of, of things that you can find, the access to information that we have, you can find a blog a YouTube channel, uh, an, an influencer or a speaker that affirms any belief that you have. Literally, no matter what belief you have, no matter how radical or unique you may find, you may think it is, you can find something on the internet, something online, some influencer or some blog or content that'll affirm your belief, whether true or false. And this kind of DIY theology, this podcast or Google theology, it thrives in isolation. It thrives because if you create essentially an echo chamber for yourself where you look up stuff that you agree with and everything you look up agrees with you and you create your own structure of theology based on what you find and what you agree with, what you're comfortable with and what you like. Um, and this circles back to what we talked about earlier in the series when Pastor Chris asked the question, who or what do you follow? And if you remember, uh, he gave three options. You can follow three things. One, you can follow religion and the rules and the regulations. And again, and it kind of taps into that where rules and regulations of religion can make you feel like you're following Jesus and doing the right thing um, when in fact, you're really not. And the second person you can follow is Jesus himself. Have a personal relationship with Jesus and walk with him. And the third option you have is to follow someone or something else. And interestingly, he added that you can't really choose to follow no one. No one is truly that autonomous and that independent. You must choose to follow someone. If it's not Jesus, if it's not religion, it's going to be something else. And the kind of edgy statement he made was that if you do that, um, what you're essentially choosing to follow is, is Silicon Valley and the, the shareholders of those big tech companies. And the reason I think there's some truth to that at the risk of sounding kind of, you know, conspiracy theory-ish, uh, the source of our information inevitably becomes from platforms, whether news platforms, social media platforms, or online, um, that are not designed and that do not prioritize truth. Uh, what they prioritize, because they're not nonprofit organizations, is profit. And 
these aren't nonprofit organizations, they prioritize profit. And while I can see why this sounds kind of conspiracy -y and, and kind of, you know, kind of off, I think that it's hard to argue that most, if not all, the sources of our information, where we look up online, social media, news networks, you know, mainstream TV, um, all of those sources of our information have a certain bias, have a certain agenda. And it's very easy, especially when you're figuring things out for yourselves, to just piece and patch together a couple of information from here, a source from here, to fit your own agenda and your own bias and, sit, and fit yourself inside your own echo chamber of things that you agree with. And you surround yourself with sources and information and content that makes you feel right with what you feel about yourself. And the problem with DIY theology, while there's a lot of attractive points to it, and it's certainly very convenient especially with anyone that has any hangups. If you have any hangups about, you know, the faith or religion, or there's a specific aspect about Christianity or religion that like, I like everything else, but this part I don't really agree with or like, or there's a part of it that's very confusing for you, um, is that it's very convenient, but it creates a false sense of security by creating the illusion of religion. That it promises the destination of religion, where in secularism um, is a better society, a more fulfilling life, a society where everyone is loved and accepted, but it says that anyone can get to that path however they want and use whatever means they want and will eventually all get there. Essentially, what it promises is that, hey, you can get to this place of a better society, of being a better person, of having a more just society, uh, but anyone can get there however they want to. But, I mean, we'll eventually all get there. And the reality is that the logic simply doesn't hold up and DIY theology, as convenient as it sounds, makes up for its convenience uh, by a lack of depth and truth. And essentially, it's the kingdom without the king all over again, where if everyone is their own king and your only rule as king is that you can't infringe on other king's policies, was there ever really a kingdom to begin with? Can you create a kingdom without a certain level of submission or something bigger than yourself, without some level of a unifying force? And that's, that's the draw of this DIY theology, of this freedom that secularism promises, that you can decide for yourself whatever you want to believe, but trust me, we'll all eventually get to this place. And the reality is that simply doesn't hold up. Um, one thing that I started doing recently as we kind of switched to what the Bible can say about this is um, uh, a lot of people ask me like, oh, what are some hobbies that you do and what are some things you do in your free time? Um, recently, I started playing um, a good amount of golf and I started picking up the sport in the past like month or two. And I told some of my friends in SoCal, this, like, hey, like when I go down, um, you know, I started playing golf and like, they'll all be like, whoa, the few friends that I do that have played golf get really excited. Like, dude, that's awesome. Like, I didn't know you played. When you come down, like, we'll play together. Like, we'll play a course together. And that's when I'm like, hey, well, maybe you should know like where I'm at first before you say stuff like that. And to give people like an indication of like, hey, like where my golf skill is at the moment, I tell them like this, this is what happens to me very often. Um, I'll go to the range sometimes uh, in the golf range to like practice. And if you're unfamiliar with golf, the range is essentially where you can get a bucket of balls and you just hit balls. Everyone's facing the same direction and just hitting balls into an empty field, right? And you're practicing your swing. Um, and I've gone a couple of times and about half of the times that I go, um, this, this strange phenomenon happens where I'll be playing and then, you know, I'm hitting balls nowhere near where I'm facing. And then someone next to me um, will come up and be like, hey, like, how, how often have you, how, like, how long have you been playing this sport? And I'm like, ah, like, I, like, just started. And they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. And they'll give me, like, an impromptu lesson. They're like, dude, like, you don't want to do this. You want to do this. And, like, I'm very grateful, right? It's, you know, especially when I'm first starting. But it's a little, like, dang, like, I was affecting your life so much that you decided to come in and take time out of your day to teach me how to play golf. 
And I'm not lying when I say this happens about 50% of the time I go to the range. And I have like three or four different golf courses that come up. And they're usually around like middle-aged Asian guys that are next to me. And they're just like, hey, man, how's it going? I don't mean it. You mind if I give some pointers real quick? Let me just help you out with that. And I'll tell all my friends, like, this is like, if you want an idea of like where I am in golf, like, this is where I am. And they'll be like, all right, well, we'll play next time. Uh, but the reality is, um, as I was trying to get better, obviously I'm listening to all these people that are, you know, giving me hints. And, like, everyone has their own kind of style of golf, whether it's, like, you know, the guy that I talked to Wednesday, and then the next week someone else will give me this pointer. And then I'll watch a YouTube video. They'll tell me something else. And what I've quickly found is that, you know, there are, like, so many different ways to play this frustrating sport. And it'll be weird because some guy will tell me something, and then he'll be like, see, you want to do this, this, and he'll swing and hit the ball, and it'll go super far. And I'm like, I want that. All right, let me do what you say. And then the next week, someone will give me literally the exact opposite of what that guy said. No, 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 you don't want to do that. You're doing this wrong. And then he'll hit the ball, and it'll go even further. And I'm like, I, now I don't even know what I'm doing anymore. And I'll watch a YouTube video. They'll tell me the exact opposite. And then I'll watch professionals playing the sport, and like, they're doing something weird too. And there's something about the reality is that in a sport like golf or even basketball, really, that it's possible to have several different methods and paths to succeed, even at the highest level. I mean, if you watch people that play golf for a living as a professional, there are variations in swings. But at the end of the day, like, they all end up in the hole as, as, with as few tries as possible. But the idea of secularism and religion, the problem with these two forces, the problem with the idea that you can create whatever theology you want and you'll eventually get to the point is that secularism and religion are two polar opposite ideologies that promise the same outcome through completely contrasting ways. And the reality is that it can work for golf, for basketball, for any of those things. But when it comes to religion, when it comes to creating this kingdom, this society of love, living a fulfilled life, that simply isn't the case. And Jesus mentions this himself in his own teaching. He says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. And, only a few find it. and if you grew up in the church, chances are you've heard this before, right? Hey, stay on the straight and narrow, right? Stay, enter through the small gate um, because, you know, wide is the gate to destruction. You want to stay on that narrow path. And the implication of this verse, at least in the way that I was presented to and the way that I was taught growing up, is that if you grew up in the church, um, the idea of the narrow road is that there's, it's almost like there's this max capacity, right? Only a few people can get on this road. Only a few people can enter through this gate. It's a really small road. We can't get a lot of people on it. It's a really small gate. Only a few people can get through it. Um, and the idea is that there's like only so many people can get through this. There is a sort of maximum capacity. After that, no one else can go on this. But if you read the text... I don't think that's what it's necessarily saying. And what Jesus is saying here isn't that there's a limited number of people that can get on this road, that can get through the gate and walk this road. What he's saying is that the road to life isn't, doesn't have a maximum load, doesn't have a limit, but it's a very specific path. Whereas the road to not life, to a meaningless life, to death, to destruction is wide. And there's a lot of different ways you can get there. But the road to a meaningful, fulfilled life, a road to the kingdom, a road to this, this fulfillment that God has for you, the, the road to this kingdom of heaven that God describes in the Bible that sounds so attractive, the road to living a life of Jesus is a very specific and narrow road. It's not so much that not anyone can get on. Anyone can get it. Anyone can get on the road. But you, can, you must follow that road. There's a very specific way. And Jesus says it himself. 
He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And while it's a nice thought and it's a convenient thought, the reality is to get to that road, to live the life of Jesus, which I would argue, whether you're a believer or not, is a very attractive one. Jesus lived a life of peace, of fulfillment. He had community. He was never isolated. And he had, he had something about him that, that commanded his presence. He fought against anxiety and stress. And he had this peace and love towards other people. Really, whether you're a Christian or not, that's got to sound attractive to you. And what Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And another way I've heard someone present this is the way of Jesus combined with the truth of Jesus leads to the life of Jesus. And this is the part of the sermon where I would say is directed towards more of the people that are in the faith. So maybe if you've been listening up until this point, you've been saying, yeah, well, like, I'm not going to leave. I don't I have no plans of leaving Christianity. I have no plans of leaving religion. So, you know, that DIY theology thing is not necessarily for me. It's not a concern. Um, I would argue, though, that this concept of DIY theology, of build your own religion, build your own spirituality and faith, happens inside the church as well, maybe just as often um, as it does outside in the secular world as well. And the reality is, um, I think it's best if you just look at an example of how Jesus deals with this in his own life, in his ministry, when he deals with someone that is building their own theology and kind of created their own structure and meaning and path to what it looks like to follow Jesus. There's a story in the Bible where Jesus and his disciples are traveling and they end up stopping at the home of one of Jesus' friends, um, sisters by the name of Mary and Martha. And he enters the home um, and he's invited in. And when he gets to the home, um, he continues essentially what he's doing. So he sits down, um, his disciples are there, he's got a pretty good crowd. Um, and he continues teaching, teaching the disciples. And in the crowd that's listening to Jesus in the home of Mary and Martha is Mary. Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to Jesus teach. Um, which sounds all fine and well until you realize that her sister Martha is not sitting there. She's preparing dinner. She's trying to be a good hostess, getting everything ready. And I'm sure anyone that's hosted a youth dinner in the past two years knows that the chaos and the craziness that comes with hosting a big house. And even more so if it's impromptu, right? So you can imagine the stress and the craziness that Martha is dealing with. I have all these people here. I need to be a good hostess. I'm going to serve Jesus. And she's getting all this stuff ready. And I can imagine there's a lot of stress going on right now. Things are probably going wrong. And as she's preparing out of the corner of eye, she sees that her sister, Mary, is sitting at Jesus' feet, just listening. The important part isn't that she's listening. It's the fact that she's not helping her at that moment, right? Like, what are you doing, right? And so she goes over to Jesus, understandably, a little frustrated, a little irked. Um, and she says, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me, right? And you can just wait. The fact that she doesn't go to Martha, she doesn't go to Mary and be like, hey, like, can you help me real quick? She feels like she's frustrated enough to put her in blast in front of everyone there, in front of Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, don't you care that she's not helping me? Tell her to come help me. It's a lot to do. Um, and I feel like in that sentence, you get a glimpse of what like DIY theology can lead to. And here, here's why I say that. Um, in devoting herself to the preparation she needed for this big dinner and being a good hostess, uh, Martha had taken it upon herself to do all these things because she deemed these are important. This is what's important right now. I need to get the house ready. I need to get the food ready. I need to get dinner ready. This is what's important. This is what I should be doing right now. And what she was doing, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with what she was doing. If anything, if this is your first time hearing the story, um, you're probably team Martha, right? Like, well, like, if anything, like, Mary is the person in the wrong here. Martha wasn't doing anything wrong. In fact, we would go as far as say Martha was doing the right thing. Isn't that what you're supposed to do when you invite someone to your house? 
you should be a good hostess. You should have food ready. And if you're going to serve them dinner, well, it's not going to cook itself, right? And the reality is when you read this story, it's true. Anyone reading this without knowing how the story ends would be like, yes, Mary is in the wrong here. She was being lazy. She, was, she missed her priorities. She misjudged the situation. Martha, she could have done it a little more tactfully, but she was in the right. She was dragging Mary towards what she was supposed to do. But the problem with Yahweh theology, especially as it pertains to those that are in the church, that are in the faith, that have no desire to leave Jesus, that your desire is to follow Jesus, is that it allows you to create your own way to get to Jesus. Like Martha, we figure out for ourselves how we want to serve Jesus. We decide what Jesus would want us to do. And in a sense, we sort of delude ourselves into thinking that we're serving Jesus when really we're serving ourselves. When we have created the way to Jesus for ourselves. This is what Jesus would want. Jesus, this is how I can best serve Jesus. When in reality, when you look at Jesus' response, it's the complete opposite. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things. This is true. But few things are needed, or indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. It's almost like Jesus is asking Martha the question, who are you really doing this for, Martha? Is this really to serve me? And maybe an even better question um, is Jesus says like, hey, actually, I would prefer if you were here too. If you ask me, Mary has chosen what is right. Yes, there are important things to do. You're not doing anything wrong. But what I would really prefer, what serving me, what following me really looks like is if you had a seat too. And listen to what I'm saying. I'm not going to be here for much longer. But the fact is, Martha would have never understood or guessed that because she was so bogged down in what she needed to do and what, she, what it looked like to serve Jesus from her perspective and the context that she had created. And maybe even more so is that Jesus tells Martha that Mary has chosen what is better and that it will not be taken away from her. Almost like, hey, don't take Mary away from what is truly important. And by Martha doing what she thinks what she's doing and serving God in her own manner, not only is she preventing herself from following Jesus and seeing Jesus, she was preventing Mary from doing it as well. Had she gone through it, had she pulled Mary out of that circle and saying, hey, we need to do what I think we need to do. We need to do what serving Jesus looks like. To me, she would have pulled Mary out of that circle and Mary wouldn't have been there to follow Jesus. And the context of someone in the faith that's striving with the relationship with Jesus is that, again, nothing Mary, nothing, sorry, nothing Martha was doing was wrong. She wasn't hurting anyone. She wasn't really hurting herself. She wasn't hurting Jesus. If anything, in the grand picture, she was doing the right thing. Um, and in a lot of ways, you could argue Martha was doing the better thing. But the reality of following Jesus is that it requires a certain level of humility and submission. And that what you may think is right or what you may think makes sense may not always align with what Jesus thinks. It may not always align with Jesus's agenda. And the problem with DIY theology, with creating your own faith, with picking and choosing certain beliefs and leaving others, is that this is true, whether you believe this in the context of a secular religion or secularism or within the Christian faith, because I, I would argue they ultimately lead to the same place. The problem is, is that it creates the illusion of progress. Progress towards whether it be following Jesus, right? It creates the illusion that you're getting closer to Jesus. It creates the illusion that you're crafting a better society and, you know, everyone is getting better. Like Martha, she could see the progress. Food that was not cooked is now cooked. The progress is now I'm getting closer to Jesus. I'm serving Jesus in the way he wants me to. But at the end of the day, because you as an individual get to decide what is good 
and what is true. And even what you decide is one subject to change. And because you get to decide those things on your own, it lacks the substance needed for true change. And the problem with DIY theology circles back to this. The reason DIY theology is so convenient and so attractive is because it says you don't need to change. Just change what you believe and then you'll feel better. The things that make you feel uncomfortable, the things that don't make sense, the things that don't vibe with you, the things that you don't understand, just get rid of them. And if you don't change, we'll just change the religion and we'll be fine. And at its core, DIY theology is centered around the idea that you don't need to change, that if a belief or religion or practice is uncomfortable, you can toss it out. And eventually what happens is that your religion, your view of God, your spirituality just becomes a mirror of your own life and of your own self. And it's worth asking yourself that question. Does your spirituality make you better or does it simply make you feel better? Does your spirituality make you feel better or does it simply, or does it make you better or does it simply make you feel better? I mean, when you look to the Bible, you can literally flip through with your eyes closed and point to a random person. Almost anyone in the Bible that followed Jesus, the catalyst for them getting up and following Jesus was grounded in uncertainty and uncomfortability and doubt, right? Abraham, Peter, Matthew, giving up their livelihood to follow Jesus. Abraham, leaving his family behind to go. Noah, building an ark when something had never happened before. Paul, throwing behind everything he believed in to follow Jesus. There's always an association. Gideon, who led this army with 300 people and just pots and pans, literally. There's always this catalyst that's grounded in uncertainty and uncomfortability. And when they attach that, and when they go ahead with that, that catalyst becomes one for growth and progress and change in their lives. And when we dictate our lives and our religion and our spirituality by picking and choosing things that make us feel comfortable and leaving out everything that doesn't allow, doesn't make sense to us, that isn't comfortable with us, what we end up doing is taking out any and all catalyst for change. And when we take that, when we take any change out of religion and there's no hope for change anymore, how can there be any progress in you going forward, getting closer to Jesus or a better society? And so the question still remains, does your spirituality make you better or does it simply make you feel better? And to be honest, that question, the best person to ask that question to is literally anyone but yourself. The best person to ask that question to of does my spirituality make me better or does it simply make me feel better? We are probably the worst person we can ask that question to. Because again, this theology thrives in isolation where you create an echo chamber for yourself and you tell yourself, you're right and this is okay. But I think the most, the most efficient, most effective way to get out of this kind of circle is to bring someone else into your life. And I say that because um, but you, when you allow someone else to speak into your life, when you add community or a mentor into the equation, you're much less likely to get a more accurate response. Or you're much more likely to get an accurate response to this question. And again, the problem with this is that it creates a spiritual treadmill where it seems like we're doing all these things, right? I've created these sets of beliefs and practices and I'm doing them. I've created these, this religion and I'm following it. But where are you following it to? Because it promises this goal that can only be reached through this narrow path. And if you create your own theology and your own set of beliefs, you essentially just run on a treadmill. You make efforts and it seems like you're going somewhere because you're working and you're doing these things. But at the end of the day, it doesn't lead anywhere. For why is the gate for wide is the road and wide is the gate to destruction, to death, to a meaningless life. But narrow is the road and small is the gate to life. And we get a better idea of what it is 
that we're leaning towards and where it is that we're taking ourselves, when we take ourselves out of that isolation, when we put ourselves into the context of church and community, and I know that Pastor Chris mentioned earlier in the series that this isn't a series about keeping you in church. It's really not. It's, series, it's a series about understanding what you're leaving behind and what your faith is, and it's by no means, you know, a, a, a series just to keep people in the pews. But at the end of the day, you can't argue with the fact that there is a benefit to having community. There's a benefit to having mentorship. There's a benefit to taking yourself out of isolation and asking others to look into your own lives and to speak into your lives as well because it can really reveal where it is that we're leaning to, where it is that we're going, and the road that we've created ourselves, where it is that it's taking us. Let's close this prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, I want to thank you again uh, just for this opportunity and, and this message, Lord, that is a bit of a tough pill to swallow in a lot of ways, Lord. It's, it's easy to look at you and faith and religion, what it looks like to follow you and, and be turned off by the struggle of, of being a Christian, Lord. And I know anyone that's spent any amount of time following you or in the faith um, understands that struggle of what it's like to follow you and to deal with temptations and to living with this world and trying to be faithful but fighting our own agendas, God. And there, while there definitely is a bit of a struggle there, Lord, and we can be tempted to simply try to make things easier for ourselves, to cut out things that we don't like, that we don't agree with, and create our own path to salvation, our own path to following you, our own path to a better life and a better society. Um, at the end of the day, God, you remind us that that's not really how it works, God. And it's really, really easy to delude ourselves and to deceive ourselves into making progress, into going forward, when in reality we've trapped ourselves on this treadmill of isolation and an echo chamber of our own thoughts and affirmations, God. I ask that you give us the strength for anyone listening in this room and anyone that has the conviction, Lord, to, to pull forward, to bring other people into our lives, to speak truth into our lives, to accept you and come to you humbly with a heart of surrender and submission, that you can speak truth into our lives and that when there are times in our lives when we may not fully understand, we may not fully agree or we may not be fully comfortable, Lord, that you give us the strength, the perseverance, the right people around us, Lord, to help guide us towards you. Praise in your son Jesus' name. Amen.